1: Chapter Twenty Nine of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Nine In the Lime Walk. Robert Audley was loitering upon the broad grass plat in front of the court as the carriage containing My Lady and Alicia drove under the archway, and drew up at the low turret door. Mr. Audley presented himself in time to hand the ladies out of the vehicle. My Lady looked very pretty in a delicate blue bonnet and the sables which her nephew had bought for her at St. Petersburg. She seemed very well pleased to see Robert, and smiled most bewitchingly as she gave him her exquisitely gloved little hand. "'So you have come back to us, truant?' she said, laughing. "'And now that you have returned, we shall keep you prisoner. "'We won't let him run away again, will we, Alicia?' Miss Audley gave her head a scornful toss that shook the heavy curls under her cavalier hat. "'I have nothing to do with the movements of so erratic an individual,' she said. "'Since Robert Audley has taken it into his head to conduct himself like some ghost-haunted hero in a German story, "'I have given up attempting to understand him.' Mr. Audley looked at his cousin with an expression of serio-comic perplexity. "'She's a nice girl,' he thought, "'but she's a nuisance. I don't know how it is, but she seems more a nuisance than she used to be.' He pulled his moustaches reflectively as he considered this question. His mind wandered away for a few moments from the great trouble of his life, to dwell upon this minor perplexity. "'She's a dear girl,' he thought, "'a generous-hearted, bouncing, noble English lassie. And yet—' he lost himself in a quagmire of doubt and difficulty. There was some hitch in his mind which he could not understand— some change in himself, beyond the change made in him by his anxiety about George Tallboys, which mystified and bewildered him. "'And, pray, where have you been wandering during the last day or two, Mr. Audley?' asked my lady, as she lingered with her stepdaughter upon the threshold of the turret door, waiting until Robert should be pleased to stand aside and allow them to pass the young man started as she asked this question, and looked up at her suddenly. Something in the aspect of her bright young beauty, something in the childish innocence of her expression, seemed to smite him to the heart, and his face grew ghastly pale as he looked at her. "'I have been—in Yorkshire,' he said, at the little watering-place where my poor friend George Tallboys lived at the time of his marriage the white change in my lady's face was the only sign of her having heard these words she smiled a faint sickly smile and tried to pass her husband's nephew i must dress for dinner she said i am going to a dinner party mr audley please let me go in i must ask you to spare me half an hour lady audley robert answered in a low voice i came down to essex on purpose to speak to you what about asked my lady She had recovered herself from any shock which she might have sustained a few moments before, and it was in her usual manner that she asked this question. Her face expressed the mingled bewilderment and curiosity of a puzzled child, rather than the serious surprise of a woman. "'What can you want to talk to me about, Mr. Audley?' she repeated. "'I will tell you when we are alone,' Robert said, glancing at his cousin, who stood a little way behind my lady, watching this confidential little dialog he is in love with my stepmother's wax doll beauty, thought Alicia, and it is for her sake he has become such a disconsolate object. He's just the sort of person to fall in love with his aunt. Miss Audley walked away to the grass-plat, turning her back upon Robert and my lady. The absurd creature turned as white as a sheet when he saw her. she thought, so he can be in love after all. That slow lump of torpidity he calls his heart can beat, I suppose, once in a quarter of a century. But it seems that nothing but a blue-eyed wax doll can set it going. I should have given him up long ago if I would known that his idea of beauty was to be found in a toy-shop. Poor Alicia crossed the grass-plat and disappeared upon the opposite side of the quadrangle, where there was a gothic gate that communicated with the stables. I am sorry to say that Sir Michael Audley's daughter went to seek consolation from her dog Caesar and her chestnut mare Atalanta, whose loose box the young lady was in the habit of visiting every day." "'Will you come into the lime-walk, Lady Audley?' said Robert, as his cousin left the garden. "'I wish to talk to you without fear of interruption or observation. I think we could choose no safer place than that. Will you come there with me?' "'If you please,' answered my lady. Mr. Audley could see that she was trembling, and that she glanced from side to side as if looking for some outlet by which she might escape him. "'You are shivering, Lady Audley,' he said. "'Yes. I am very cold. I would rather speak to you some other day, please. Let it be to-morrow, if you will. I have to dress for dinner, and I want to see Sir Michael. I have not seen him since ten o'clock this morning. Please let it be to-morrow.' There was a painful piteousness in her tone. Heaven knows how painful to Robert's heart. Heaven knows what horrible images arose in his mind as he looked down at that fair young face and thought of the task that lay before him. "'I must speak to you, Lady Audley,' he said. "'If I am cruel, it is you who have made me cruel. You might have escaped this ordeal. You might have avoided me. I gave you fair warning. But you have chosen to defy me. And it is your own folly which is to blame if I no longer spare you. Come with me. I tell you again, I must speak to you." There was a cold determination in his tone, which silenced my lady's objections. She followed him submissively to the little iron gate which communicated with the long garden behind the house—the garden in which a little rustic wooden bridge led across the quiet fish-pond into the lime-walk. The early winter twilight was closing in and the intricate tracery of the leafless branches that overarched the lonely pathway looked black against the cold grey of the evening sky. The lime-walk seemed like some cloister in this uncertain light. "'Why do you bring me to this horrible place to frighten me out of my poor wits?' cried my lady peevishly. "'You ought to know how nervous I am.' "'You are nervous, my lady?' "'Yes, dreadfully nervous. I am worth a fortune to poor Mr. Dawson.' He's always sending me camphor, and sal-volatile, and red lavender, and all kinds of abominable mixtures, but he can't cure me. "'Do you remember what Macbeth tells his physician, my lady?' said Robert gravely. "'Mr. Dawson may be very much more clever than the Scottish leech, but I doubt if even he can minister to the mind that is diseased.' "'Who said that my mind was diseased?' exclaimed Lady Audley. "'I say so, my lady.' Answered Robert. You tell me that you are nervous, and that all the medicines your doctor can prescribe are only so much physic that might as well be thrown to the dogs. Let me be the physician to strike to the root of your malady, Lady Audley. Heaven knows that I wish to be merciful, that I would spare you as far as it is in my power to spare you in doing justice to others. But justice must be done. Shall I tell you why you are nervous in this house, my lady? If you can, she answered with a little laugh because for you this house is haunted haunted yes haunted by the ghost of george tallboys robert Audley heard my lady's quickened breathing he fancied he could almost hear the loud beating of her heart as she walked by his side shivering now and then and with her sable cloak wrapped tightly around her what do you mean she cried suddenly after a pause of some moments why do you torment me about this george tallboys who happens to have taken it into his head to keep out of your way for a few months. Are you going mad, Mr. Audley? And do you select me as the victim of your monomania? What is George Tallboy's to me that you should worry me about him?' "'He was a stranger to you, my lady, was he not?' "'Of course,' answered Lady Audley. "'What should he be but a stranger?' "'Shall I tell you the story of my friend's disappearance as I read that story, my lady?' asked Robert. "'No!' cried Lady Audley. "'I wish to know nothing of your friend. If he is dead, I am sorry for him. If he lives, I have no wish either to see him or to hear of him. Let me go in to see my husband, if you please, Mr. Audley, unless you wish to detain me in this gloomy place until I catch my death of cold.' "'I wish to detain you until you have heard what I have to say, Lady Audley,' answered Robert resolutely. "'I will detain you no longer than is necessary, and when you have heard me you shall take your own course of action.' "'Very well, then. Pray lose no time in saying what you have to say,' replied my lady carelessly. "'I promise you to attend very patiently.' "'When my friend George Tallboys returned to England—' Robert began gravely. "'The thought which was uppermost in his mind was the thought of his wife. "'Whom he had deserted,' said my lady quickly. "'At least,' she added more deliberately, "'I remember you telling us something to that effect when you'd first told us your friend's story.' Robert Audley did not notice this observation. "'The thought that was uppermost in his mind was the thought of his wife,' he repeated. "'His fairest hope in the future was the hope of making her happy, and lavishing upon her the pittance which he had won by the force of his own strong arm in the gold-fields of Australia. I saw him within a few hours of his reaching England, and I was a witness to the joyful pride with which he looked forward to his reunion with his wife. I was also a witness to the blow which struck him to the very heart which changed him from the man he had been, to a creature as unlike that former self, as one human being can be unlike another. The blow which made that cruel change was the announcement of his wife's death in the Times newspaper. I now believe that announcement was a black and bitter lie. "'Indeed,' said my lady. "'And what reason could any one have for announcing the death of Mrs. Tallboys, if Mrs. Tallboys had been alive?' "'The lady herself might have had a reason,' Walbert answered quietly. "'What reason?' "'How if she had taken advantage of George's absence to win a richer husband? How if she had married again, and wished to throw my poor friend off the scent by this false announcement?' Lady Audley shrugged her shoulders. "'Your suppositions are rather ridiculous, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'It is to be hoped that you have some reasonable grounds for them.' "'I have examined a file of each of the newspapers published in Chelmsford and Colchester,' continued Robert, without replying to my lady's last observation. "'And I find in one of the Colchester papers, dated July the 2nd, 1850, a brief paragraph among numerous miscellaneous scraps of information copied from other newspapers, to the effect that a Mr. George Tallboys, an English gentleman, had arrived at Sydney from the goldfields, carrying with him nuggets and gold-dust to the amount of twenty thousand pounds, and that he had realized his property, and sailed for Liverpool in the fast-sailing clipper Argus. "'This is a very small fact, of course, Lady Audley. "'But it is enough to prove that any person residing in Essex in the July of the year fifty-seven "'was likely to become aware of George Tallboys's return from Australia. "'Do you follow me?' "'Not very clearly,' said my lady. "'What have the Essex papers to do with the death of Mrs. Tallboys?' We will come to that by and by, Lady Audley. I say that I believe the announcement in the Times to have been a false announcement, and a part of the conspiracy which was carried out by Helen Talboys and Lieutenant Malden against my poor friend. A conspiracy? Yes, a conspiracy concocted by an artful woman, who had speculated upon the chances of her husband's death, and had secured a splendid position at the risk of committing a crime. A bold woman, my lady— who thought to play her comedy out to the end without fear of detection. A wicked woman, who did not care what misery she might inflict upon the honest heart of the man she betrayed. But a foolish woman, who looked at life as a game of chance, in which the best player was likely to hold the winning cards, forgetting that there is a providence above the pitiful speculators, and that wicked secrets are never permitted to remain long hidden." If this woman of whom I speak had never been guilty of any blacker sin than the publication of that lying announcement in the Times newspaper, I should still hold her as the most detestable and despicable of her sex, the most pitiless and calculating of human creatures. That cruel lie was a base and cowardly blow in the dark. It was the treacherous dagger-thrust of an infamous assassin. "'But how do you know that the announcement was a false one?' asked my lady. "'You told us that you had been to Ventnor with Mr. Tallboys to see his wife's grave. "'Who was it who died at Ventnor if it was not Mrs. Tallboys?' "'Ah, Lady Audley,' said Robert, "'that is a question which only two or three people can answer, "'and one or other of those persons shall answer it to me before long. "'I tell you, my lady, that I am determined to unravel the mystery of George Tallboys's death. "'Do you think I am to be put off by feminine prevarication, by womanly trickery?' "'No. Link by link I have put together the chain of evidence, which wants but a link here and there to be complete in its terrible strength. Do you think I will suffer myself to be baffled? Do you think I shall fail to discover those missing links? No, Lady Audley, I shall not fail, for I know where to look for them. There is a fair-haired woman at Southampton, a woman called Plowson, who has had some share in the secrets of the father of my friend's wife. I have an idea that she can help me to discover the history of the woman who lies buried in Ventnor Churchyard, and I will spare no trouble in making that discovery, unless—unless what? asked my lady eagerly. Unless the woman I wish to save from degradation and punishment accepts the mercy I offer her, and takes warning while there is still time. My lady shrugged her graceful shoulders, and flashed bright defiance out of her blue eyes. "'She would be a very foolish woman if she suffered herself to be influenced by any such absurdity,' she said. "'You are hypochondriacal, Mr. Audley, and you must take camphor, or red lavender, or sal volatile. "'What can be more ridiculous than this idea which you have taken into your head? "'You lose your friend George Tallboys in rather a mysterious manner. "'That is to say, that gentleman chooses to leave England without giving you due notice. "'What of that?' You confess that he became an altered man after his wife's death. He grew eccentric and misanthropical. He affected an utter indifference as to what became of him. What more likely, then, that he grew tired of the monotony of civilized life, and ran away to those savage gold-fields to find a distraction for his grief? It is rather a romantic story, but by no means an uncommon one. But you are not satisfied with this simple interpretation of your friend's disappearance, and you build up some absurd theory of a conspiracy which has no existence except in your own overheated brain. Helen Tallboys is dead. The Times newspaper declares that she is dead. Her own father tells you she is dead. The headstone of the grave in Ventnor Churchyard bears record of her death. "'By what right?' cried my lady, her voice rising to that shrill and piercing tone peculiar to her when affected by any intense agitation. "'By what right, Mr. Audley, do you come to me?' "'and torment me about George Tallboys. "'By what right do you dare to say that his wife is still alive?' "'By the right of circumstantial evidence, Lady Audley,' answered Robert. "'By the right of that circumstantial evidence "'which will sometimes fix the guilt of a man's murder upon that person "'who, on the first hearing of the case, "'seems of all other men the most unlikely to be guilty.' "'What circumstantial evidence?' "'The evidence of time and place. "'The evidence of handwriting.' When Helen Tallboys left her father's at Wildernsey, she left a letter behind her. A letter in which she declared that she was weary of her old life, and that she wished to seek a new home and a new fortune. That letter is in my possession." Indeed. Shall I tell you whose handwriting resembles that of Helen Tallboys so closely, that the most dexterous expert could perceive no distinction between the two? A resemblance between the handwriting of two women is no very uncommon circumstance nowadays replied my lady carelessly. "'I could show you the calligraphies of half a dozen female correspondents, and defy you to discover any great difference in them.' "'But what if the handwriting is a very uncommon one, presenting marked peculiarities by which it may be recognised among a hundred? "'Why, in that case, the coincidence is rather curious,' answered my lady. "'But it is nothing more than a coincidence.' You cannot deny the fact of Helen Tallboy's death on the ground that her handwriting resembles that of some surviving person. But if a series of such coincidences lead up to the same point, said Robert, Helen Tallboy's left her father's house, according to the declaration in her own handwriting, because she was weary of her old life, and wished to begin a new one. Do you know what I infer from this? My lady shrugged her shoulders. I have not the least idea, she said. And as you have detained me in this gloomy place nearly half an hour, I must beg that you will release me, and let me go and dress for dinner.' "'No, Lady Audley,' answered Robert, with a cold sternness that was so strange to him as to transform him into another creature, a pitiless embodiment of justice, a cruel instrument of retribution. "'No, Lady Audley,' he repeated, "'I have told you that womanly prevarication will not help you. I tell you now that defiance will not serve you. I have dealt fairly with you, and have given you fair warning. I gave you indirect notice of your danger two months ago.' "'What do you mean?' asked my lady suddenly. "'You did not choose to take that warning, Lady Audley,' pursued Robert. "'And the time has come in which I must speak very plainly to you. "'Do you think the gifts which you have played against fortune are to hold you exempt from retribution? "'No, my lady. Your youth and beauty, your grace and refinement— only make the horrible secret of your life more horrible. I tell you that the evidence against you wants only one link to be strong enough for your condemnation, and that link shall be added. Helen Tallboys never returned to her father's house. When she deserted that poor old father, she went away from his humble shelter with the declared intention of washing her hands of that old life. What do people generally do when they wish to begin a new existence, to start for a second time in the race of life— "'free from the encumbrances that had fettered their first journey. "'They changed their names, Lady Audley. "'Helen Tallboys deserted her infant son. "'She went away from Wildernsey with the predetermination of sinking her identity. "'She disappeared as Helen Tallboys upon the 16th of August, 1854, "'and upon the 17th of that month she reappeared as Lucy Graham, "'the friendless girl who undertook a profitless duty "'in consideration of a home in which she was asked no questions.' "'You are mad, Mr. Audley,' cried my lady. "'You are mad, and my husband shall protect me from your insolence. "'What if this Helen Tallboys ran away from her home upon one day, "'and I entered my employer's house upon the next? "'What does that prove?' "'By itself very little,' replied Robert Audley. "'But with the help of other evidence.' "'What evidence?' "'The evidence of two labels, pasted one over the other,' upon a box left by you in possession of Mrs. Vincent—the upper label bearing the name of Miss Graham—the lower, that of Mrs. George Tallboys." My lady was silent. Robert Audley could not see her face in the dusk, but he could see that her two small hands were clasped convulsively over her heart, and he knew that the shot had gone home to its mark. God help her, poor wretched creature, he thought. She knows now that she is lost. I wonder if the judges of the land feel as I do now when they put on the black cap and pass sentence of death upon some poor shivering wretch who has never done them any wrong. Do they feel a heroic fervour of virtuous indignation? Or do they suffer this dull anguish which gnaws my vitals as I talk to this helpless woman?" He walked by my lady's side, silently, for some minutes. They had been pacing up and down the dim avenue, and they were now drawing near the leafless shrubbery at one end of the lime-walk. The shrubbery in which the ruined well sheltered its unheated decay among the tangled masses of briary-underwood. A winding pathway, neglected and half-choked with weeds, led toward this well. Robert left the lime-walk and struck into this pathway. There was more light in the shrubbery than in the avenue, and Mr. Audley wished to see my lady's face. He did not speak until they reached the patch of rank grass beside the well. The massive brickwork had fallen away here and there and loose fragments of masonry lay buried amidst weeds and briars. The heavy posts which had supported the wooden roller still remained, but the iron spindle had been dragged from its socket, and lay a few paces from the well, rusty, discoloured, and forgotten. Robert Audley leaned against one of the moss-grown posts, and looked down at my lady's face, very pale in the chill winter twilight. The moon had newly risen, a feebly luminous crescent in the grey heavens— and a faint ghostly light mingled with the misty shadows of the declining day. My lady's face seemed like that face which Robert Audley had seen in his dreams, looking out of the white foam flakes on the green sea-waves and luring his uncle to destruction. "'Those two labels are in my possession, Lady Audley,' he resumed. "'I took them from the box left by you at Crescent Villas. I took them in the presence of Mrs. Vincent and Miss Tonks. Have you any proofs to offer against this evidence? You say to me— I am Lucy Graham, and I have nothing whatever to do with Helen Tallboys. In that case you will produce witnesses who will declare your antecedents. Where had you been living prior to your appearance at Crescent Villas? You must have friends, relations, connections, who can come forward to prove as much as this for you. If you were the most desolate creature upon this earth, you would be able to point to some one who could identify you with the past." "'Yes!' cried my lady. If I were placed in a criminal dock, I could, no doubt, bring forward witnesses to refute your absurd accusation. But I am not in a criminal dock, Mr. Audley, and I do not choose to do anything but laugh at your ridiculous folly. I tell you that you are mad. If you please to say that Helen Tallboys is not dead, and that I am Helen Tallboys, you may do so. If you choose to go wandering about in the places in which I have lived, and to the places in which this Mrs. Tallboys has lived— You must follow the bent of your own inclination. But I would warn you, that such fancies have sometimes conducted people, as apparently sane as yourself, to the lifelong imprisonment of a private lunatic asylum. Robert Audley started and recoiled a few paces among the weeds and brushwood, as my lady said this. "'She would be capable of any new crime to shield her from the consequences of the old one,' he thought. "'She would be capable of using her influence with my uncle to place me in a madhouse.' I do not say that Robert Audley was a coward, but I will admit that a shiver of horror, something akin to fear, chilled him to the heart as he remembered the horrible things that have been done by women, since that day upon which Eve was created to be Adam's companion and helpmeet in the Garden of Eden. What if this woman's hellish power of dissimulation should be stronger than the truth, and crush him? She had not spared George Tallboys when he stood in her way, and menaced her with a certain peril. Would she spare him who threatened her with a far greater danger? are women merciful, or loving, or kind in proportion to their beauty and grace. Was there not a certain M. Mazaire de Latude, who had the bad fortune to offend the all-accomplished Madame de Pompadour, who expiated his youthful indiscretion by a lifelong imprisonment, who twice escaped from prison, to be twice cast back into captivity, who, trusting in the tardy generosity of his beautiful foe, betrayed himself to an implacable fiend? Robert Audley looked at the pale face of the woman standing by his side—that fair and beautiful face, illumined by starry blue eyes, that had a strange and surely a dangerous light in them, and remembered a hundred stories of womanly perfidy, shuddered as he thought how unequal the struggle might be between himself and his uncle's wife. "'I have shown her my cards,' he thought, "'but she has kept hers hidden from me. The mask that she wears is not to be plucked away. My uncle would rather think me mad than believe her guilty." The pale face of Clara Tallboys—that grave and earnest face, so different in its character to my lady's fragile beauty—arose before him. "'What a coward I am to think of myself or my own danger,' he thought. "'The more I see of this woman, the more reason I have to dread her influence upon others—the more reason to wish her far away from this house.' He looked about him in the dusky obscurity. The lonely garden was as quiet as some solitary graveyard, walled in and hidden away from the world of the living. It was somewhere in this garden that she met George Tallboys upon the day of his disappearance, he thought. I wonder where it was they met. I wonder where it was that he looked into her cruel face, and taxed her with her falsehood. My lady, with her little hand resting lightly upon the opposite post to that against which Robert leaned, toyed with her pretty foot among the long weeds— but kept a furtive watch upon her enemy's face. "'It is to be a duel to the death, then, my lady,' said Robert Audley, solemnly. "'You refuse to accept my warning. You refuse to run away and repent of your wickedness in some foreign place, far from the generous gentleman you have deceived and fooled by your false witcheries. You choose to remain here and defy me.' "'I do,' answered Lady Audley, lifting her head and looking full at the young barrister. It is no fault of mine if my husband's nephew goes mad, and chooses me for the victim of his monomania." "'So be it, then, my lady,' answered Robert. "'My friend George Tallboys was last seen entering these gardens by the little iron gate by which we came in to-night. He was last heard inquiring for you. He was seen to enter these gardens, but he was never seen to leave them. I believe that he met his death within the boundary of these grounds, and that his body lies hidden below some quiet water.' or in some forgotten corner of this place. I will have such a search made as shall level that house to the earth, and root up every tree in these gardens, rather than I will fail in finding the grave of my murdered friend." Lady Audley uttered a long, low, wailing cry, and threw up her arms above her head with a wild gesture of despair. But she made no answer to the ghastly charge of her accuser. Her arms dropped slowly, and she stood staring at Robert Audley— her white face gleaming through the dusk, her blue eyes glittering and dilated. "'You shall never live to do this,' she said. "'I will kill you first. Why have you tormented me so? Why could you not let me alone? What harm had I ever done you that you should make yourself my persecutor, and dog my steps, and watch my looks and play the spy upon me? Do you want to drive me mad? Do you know what it is to wrestle with a madwoman? "'No!' cried my lady with a laugh,—'You do not, or you would never—' She stopped abruptly, and drew herself suddenly to her fullest height. It was the same action which Robert had seen in the old half-drunken lieutenant, and it had that same dignity, the sublimity of extreme misery. "'Go away, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'You are mad. I tell you, you are mad.' "'I am going, my lady,' answered Robert quietly. I would have condoned your crimes out of pity to your wretchedness. You have refused to accept my mercy. I wished to have pity upon the living. I shall henceforth only remember my duty to the dead." He walked away from the lonely well under the shadow of the limes. My lady followed him slowly down that long gloomy avenue, and across the rustic bridge to the iron gate. As he passed through the gate, Alicia came out of a little half-glass door that opened from an oak-panelled breakfast-room at one angle of the house— and met her cousin upon the threshold of the gateway. "'I've been looking for you everywhere, Robert,' she said. "'Papa has come down to the library, and he will be glad to see you.' The young man started at the sound of his cousin's fresh young voice. "'Good heaven,' he thought, "'can these two women be of the same clay? Can this frank, generous-hearted girl, who cannot conceal any impulse of her innocent nature, be of the same flesh and blood as that wretched creature whose shadow falls upon the path beside me?' He looked from his cousin to Lady Audley, who stood near the gateway, waiting for him to stand aside and let her pass him. "'I don't know what has come to your cousin, my dear Alicia,' said my lady. "'He is so absent-minded and eccentric as to be quite beyond my comprehension.' "'Indeed!' exclaimed Miss Audley. And yet I should imagine, from the length of your tête-à-tête, that you had made some effort to understand him." "'Oh, yes,' said Robert quietly. My lady and I understand each other very well. But as it is growing late, I will wish you good evening, ladies. I shall sleep to-night at Mount Stanning, as I have some business to attend to up there, and I will come down to see my uncle to-morrow.' "'What, Robert?' cried Alicia. "'You surely won't go away without seeing Papa?' "'Yes, my dear,' answered the young man. "'I am a little disturbed by some disagreeable business in which I am very much concerned, and I would rather not see my uncle.' "'Good-night, Alicia. I will come or write to-morrow.' He pressed his cousin's hand, bowed to Lady Audley, and walked away under the black shadows of the archway, and out into the quiet avenue beyond the court. My lady and Alicia stood watching him until he was out of sight. "'What in goodness name is the matter with my cousin Robert?' exclaimed Miss Audley impatiently, as the barrister disappeared. "'What does he mean by these absurd goings-on? "'Some disagreeable business that disturbs him, indeed!' I suppose the unhappy creature has had a brief forced upon him by some evil-starred attorney, and is sinking into a state of imbecility from a dim consciousness of his own incompetence." "'Have you ever studied your cousin's character, Alicia?' asked my lady very seriously, after a pause. "'Studied his character? No, Lady Aldley, why should I study his character?' said Alicia. There is very little study required to convince anybody that he is a lazy, selfish Sybarite, who cares for nothing in the world except his own ease and comfort. "'But you have never thought him eccentric?' "'Eccentric!' repeated Alicia, pursing up her red lips and shrugging up her shoulders. "'Well, yes. I believe that is the excuse generally made for such people. I suppose Bob is eccentric.' "'I have never heard you speak of his father and mother.' said my lady thoughtfully.—Do you remember them?" I never saw his mother. She was a Miss Dalrymple, a very dashing girl, who ran away with my uncle, and lost a very handsome fortune in consequence. She died at Nice when poor Bob was five years old. And "'Did you ever hear anything particular about her?' "'How do you mean particular?' asked Alicia. Did you ever hear that she was eccentric—what people call odd?' "'Oh, no!' said Alicia, laughing. My aunt was a very reasonable woman, I believe, though she did marry for love. But you must remember that she died before I was born, and I have not, therefore, felt very much curiosity about her. "'But you recollect your uncle, I suppose?' "'My uncle Robert,' said Alicia. "'Oh, yes, I remember him very well, indeed.' "'Was he eccentric? I mean to say, peculiar in his habits, like her cousin?' "'Yes, I believe Robert inherits all his absurdities from his father.' My uncle expressed the same indifference for his fellow-creatures as my cousin. But as he was a good husband, an affectionate father, and a kind master, nobody ever challenged his opinions. But he was eccentric. Yes, I suppose he was generally thought a little eccentric. Ah, said my lady gravely, I thought as much. Do you know, Alicia, madness is more often transmitted from father to daughter, and from mother to daughter, than from mother to son— Your cousin, Robert Audley, is a very handsome young man, and I believe a very good-hearted young man. But he must be watched, Alicia, for he is mad." "'Mad?' cried Miss Audley, indignantly. "'You are dreaming, my lady, or—or you are trying to frighten me,' added the young lady, with considerable alarm. "'I only wish to put you on your guard, Alicia,' answered my lady. "'Mr. Audley may be, as you say, merely eccentric but he has talked to me this evening in a manner that has filled me with absolute terror, and I believe that he is going mad. I shall speak very seriously to Sir Michael this very night." "'Speak to Papa!' exclaimed Alicia. "'You surely won't distress Papa by suggesting such a possibility.' "'I shall only put him on his guard, my dear Alicia.' "'But he'll never believe you,' said Miss Audley. "'He will laugh at such an idea.' "'No, Alicia.' he will believe anything that i tell him answered my lady with a quiet smile end of chapter 29 chapter 30 of lady audley's secret this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer Please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Klett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Thirty. Preparing the Ground. Lady Audley went from the garden to the library, a pleasant oak-panelled, homely apartment in which Sir Michael liked to sit reading or writing or arranging the business of his estate with his steward, a stalwart countryman, half agriculturalist, half lawyer. Who rented a small farm a few miles from the court. The baronet was seated in a capacious easy chair near the hearth. The bright blaze of the fire rose and fell, flashing now upon the polished carvings of the black oak bookcase, now upon the gold and scarlet bindings of the books, sometimes glimmering upon the Athenian helmet of a marble palace, sometimes lighting up the forehead of Sir Robert Peel. The lamp upon the reading table had not yet been lighted, and Sir Michael sat in the firelight. "'waiting for the coming of his young wife. "'It is impossible for me ever to tell the purity of his generous love. "'It is impossible to describe that affection "'which was as tender as the love of a young mother for her firstborn, "'as brave and chivalrous as the heroic passion "'of a bayard for his liege mistress. "'The door opened while he was thinking of this fondly loved wife, "'and looking up, the baronet saw the slender form standing in the doorway. "'Why, my darling!' he exclaimed, as my lady closed the door behind her and came toward his chair. "'I have been thinking of you, and waiting for you an hour. Where have you been, and what have you been doing?' My lady, standing in the shadow rather than the light, paused a few moments before replying to this question. "'I have been to Chelmsford,' she said. "'Shopping, and—' She hesitated, twisting her bonnet-strings in her thin white fingers with an air of pretty embarrassment. "'And what, my dear?' asked the baronet. "'What have you been doing since you came from Chelmsford? "'I heard a carriage stop at the door an hour ago. "'It was yours, was it not?' "'Yes, I came home an hour ago,' answered my lady, with the same air of embarrassment. "'And what have you been doing since you came home?' Sir Michael Audley asked this question with a slightly reproachful accent. His young wife's presence made the sunshine of his life, and though he could not bear to chain her to his side— It grieved him to think that she could willingly remain unnecessarily absent from him, frittering away her time in some childish talk or frivolous occupation. "'What have you been doing since you came home, my dear?' he repeated. "'What has kept you so long away from me?' "'I have been—talking—to—Mr. Robert Audley.' She still twisted her bonnet-string round and round her fingers. She still spoke with the same air of embarrassment. "'Robert!' exclaimed the baronet. "'Is Robert here?' "'He was here a little while ago.' "'And is here still, I suppose?' "'No. He has gone away.' "'Gone away?' cried Sir Michael. "'What do you mean, my darling?' "'I mean that your nephew came to the court this afternoon. Alicia and I found him idling about the gardens. He stayed here till about a quarter of an hour ago, talking to me, and then he hurried off without a word of explanation— "'Except, indeed, some ridiculous excuse about business at Mount Stanning.' "'Business at Mount Stanning? Why, what business can he possibly have in that out-of-the-way place? "'He has gone to sleep at Mount Stanning, then, I suppose?' "'Yes. I think he said something to that effect.' "'Upon my word!' exclaimed the baronet. "'I think that boy is half mad.' My lady's face was so much in shadow— that Sir Michael Audley was unaware of the bright change that came over its sickly pallor, as he made this very commonplace observation. A triumphant smile illuminated Lucy Audley's countenance, a smile that plainly said, It is coming! It is coming! I can twist him which way I like. I can put black before him, and if I say it is white, he will believe me. But Sir Michael Audley, in declaring that his nephew's wits were disordered, merely uttered that commonplace ejaculation which is well known to have very little meaning. The baronet had, it is true, no very great estimate of Robert's faculty for the business of this everyday life. He was in the habit of looking upon his nephew as a good-natured non-entity, a man whose heart had been amply stocked by liberal nature with all the best things the generous goddess had to bestow, but whose brain had been somewhat overlooked in the distribution of intellectual gifts. Sir Michael Audley made that mistake which is very commonly made by easy-going, well-to-do observers, who have no occasion to look below the surface. He mistook laziness for incapacity. He thought, because his nephew was idle, he must necessarily be stupid. He concluded that if Robert did not distinguish himself, it was because he could not. He forgot the mute, inglorious Miltons, who die voiceless and inarticulate for want of that dogged perseverance, that blind courage— which the poet must possess before he can find a publisher. He forgot the Cromwells, who see the noble vessels of the State floundering upon a sea of confusion, and going down in a tempest of noisy bewilderment, and who are yet powerless to get at the helm, forbidden even to send out a lifeboat to the sinking ship. Surely it is a mistake to judge of what a man can do by that which he has done. The world's Valhalla is a close burrow and perhaps the greatest men may be those who perish silently far away from the sacred portal. Perhaps the purest and brightest spirits are those who shrink from the turmoil of the race-course, the tumult and confusion of the struggle. The game of life is something like the game of ecarte and it may be that the very best cards are sometimes left in the pack. My lady threw off her bonnet, and seated herself upon a velvet-covered footstool at Sir Michael's feet. There was nothing studied or affected in this girlish action— It was so natural to Lucy Audley to be childish, that no one would have wished to see her otherwise. It would have seemed as foolish to expect dignified reserve or womanly gravity from this amber-haired siren, as to wish for rich basses amid the clear treble of a skylark's song. She sat with her pale face turned away from the firelight, and with her hands locked together upon the arm of her husband's easy-chair. They were very restless, these slender white hands. My lady twisted the jewelled fingers in and out of each other as she talked to her husband. "'I wanted to come to you, you know, dear,' said she. "'I wanted to come to you directly, I got home. But Mr. Audley insisted upon my stopping to talk to him.' "'But what about, my love?' asked the baronet. "'What could Robert have to say to you?' My lady did not answer this question. Her fair head dropped upon her husband's knee. Her rippling yellow curls fell over her face." Sir Michael lifted that beautiful head with his strong hands, and raised my lady's face. The firelight shining on that pale face lit up the large, soft blue eyes, and showed them drowned in tears. "'Lucy! Lucy!' cried the baronet. "'What is the meaning of this? My love, my love, what has happened to distress you in this manner?' Lady Audley tried to speak, but the words died inarticulately upon her trembling lips— A choking sensation in her throat seemed to strangle those false and plausible words, her only armor against her enemies. She could not speak. The agony she had endured silently in the dismal lime-walk had grown too strong for her, and she broke into a tempest of hysterical sobbing. It was no simulated grief that shook her slender frame, and tore at her like some ravenous beast that would have rent her piecemeal with its horrible strength. It was a storm of real anguish and terror." of remorse and misery. It was the one wild outcry, in which the woman's feebler nature got the better of the siren's art. It was not thus that she had meant to fight her terrible duel with Robert Audley. Those were not the weapons which she had intended to use. But perhaps no artifice which she could have devised would have served her so well as this one outburst of natural grief. It shook her husband to the very soul. It bewildered and terrified him, It reduced the strong intellect of the man to helpless confusion and perplexity. It struck at the one weak point in a good man's nature. It appealed straight to Sir Michael Audley's affection for his wife. Ah, heaven help a strong man's tender weakness for the woman he loves! Heaven pity him when the guilty creature has deceived him, and comes with her tears and lamentations, to throw herself at his feet in self-abandonment and remorse, torturing him with the sight of her agony, rending his heart with her sobs— Lacerating his breast with her groans, multiplying her sufferings into a great anguish for him to bear, multiplying them by twentyfold, multiplying them in a ratio of a brave man's capacity for endurance. Heaven forgive him, if maddened by that cruel agony. The balance wavers for a moment, and he is ready to forgive anything, ready to take this wretched one to the shelter of his breast, and to pardon that which the stern voice of manly honour urges must not be pardoned. Pity him! pity him. The wife's worst remorse, when she stands without the threshold of the home, she may never enter more, is not equal to the agony of the husband who closes the portal on that familiar and entreating face. The anguish of the mother who may never look again upon her children, is less than the torment of the father who has to say to those little ones, My darlings, you are henceforth motherless. Sir Michael Audley rose from his chair, trembling with indignation, and ready to do immediate battle with the person who had caused his wife's grief. "'Lucy,' he said, "'Lucy, I insist upon your telling me what and who has distressed you. I insist upon it. Whoever has annoyed you shall answer to me for your grief. Come, my love, tell me directly what it is.' He seated himself and bent over the drooping figure at his feet, calming his own agitation and his desire to soothe his wife's distress. "'Tell me what it is, my dear.' he whispered tenderly. The sharp paroxysm had passed away, and my lady looked up. A glittering light shone through the tears in her eyes, and the lines about her pretty rosy mouth—those hard and cruel lines which Robert Audley had observed in the pre-Raphaelite portrait—were plainly visible in the firelight. "'I am very silly,' she said. "'But really he has made me quite hysterical.' "'Who? Who has made you hysterical?' "'Your nephew,' "'Mr. Robert Audley.' "'Robert?' cried the baronet. "'Lucy, what do you mean?' "'I told you that Mr. Audley insisted upon my going into the Lime-Walk, dear,' said my lady. "'He wanted to talk to me,' he said, and I went. "'And he said such horrible things that—' "'What horrible things, Lucy?' Lady Audley shuddered and clung with convulsive fingers to the strong hand that had rested caressingly upon her shoulder. "'What did he say, Lucy?' "'Oh, my dear love, how can I tell you?' cried my lady. "'I know that I shall distress you, or you will laugh at me, and then—' "'Laugh at you? No, Lucy!' Lady Audley was silent for a moment. She sat looking straight before her into the fire, with her fingers still locked about her husband's hand. "'My dear,' she said slowly, hesitating now and then between her words, as if she almost shrunk from uttering them, "'Have you ever—' "'I am so afraid of vexing you. "'Have you ever thought, Mr. Audley, a little—a little—a little little what, my darling?' "'A little—out of his mind,' faltered Lady Audley. "'Out of his mind?' cried Sir Michael. "'My dear girl, what are you thinking of?' "'You said just now, dear, that you thought he was half mad.' "'Did I, my love?' said the baronet, laughing. "'I don't remember saying it. "'and it was a mere façon de parler, that meant nothing whatever. "'Robert may be a little eccentric—a little stupid, perhaps. "'He mayn't be overburdened with wits, but I don't think he has brains enough for madness. "'I believe it's generally your great intellects that get out of order.' "'But madness is sometimes hereditary,' said my lady. "'Mr. Audley may have inherited—' "'He has inherited no madness from his father's family,' interrupted Sir Michael. "'The Audleys have never peopled private lunatic asylums, or feed mad doctors.' "'Nor from his mother's family?' "'Not to my knowledge.' "'People generally keep these things a secret,' said my lady gravely. "'There may have been madness in your sister-in-law's family.' "'I don't think so, my dear,' replied Sir Michael. "'But, Lucy, tell me what in Heaven's name has put this idea into your head?' "'I have been trying to account for your nephew's conduct— I can account for it in no other manner. If you had heard the things he said to me to-night, Sir Michael, you too might have thought him mad.' "'But what did he say, Lucy?' "'I can scarcely tell you. You can see how much he has stupefied and bewildered me. I believe he has lived too long alone in those solitary temple chambers. Perhaps he reads too much, or smokes too much. You know that some physicians declare madness to be a mere illness of the brain, an illness to which any one is subject.' and which may be produced by given causes, and cured by given means. Lady Audley's eyes were still fixed upon the burning coals in the wide grate. She spoke as if she had been discussing a subject that she had often heard discussed before. She spoke as if her mind had almost wandered away from the thought of her husband's nephew, to the wider question of madness in the abstract. "'Why should he not be mad?' resumed my lady. "'People are insane for years and years before their insanity is found out. They know that they are mad.' but they know how to keep their secret. And perhaps they may sometimes keep it till they die. Sometimes a paroxysm seizes them, and in an evil hour they betray themselves. They commit a crime, perhaps. The horrible temptation of opportunity assails them. The knife is in their hand, and the unconscious victim by their side. They may conquer the restless demon, and go away, and die innocent of any violent deed but they may yield to the horrible temptation—the frightful, passionate, hungry craving for violence and horror. They sometimes yield and are lost." Lady Audley's voice rose as she argued this dreadful question. The hysterical excitement from which she had only just recovered had left its effects upon her, but she controlled herself, and her tone grew calmer as she resumed. "'Robert Audley is mad,' she said decisively. "'What is one of the strangest diagnostics of madness?' what is the first appalling sign of mental aberration? The mind becomes stationary, the brain stagnates, the even current of reflection is interrupted, the thinking power of the brain resolves itself into a monotone. As the waters of a tideless pool putrefy by reason of their stagnation, the mind becomes turbid and corrupt through lack of action, and the perpetual reflection upon one subject resolves itself into monomania. Robert Audley is a monomaniac. The disappearance of his friend, George Tallboys, grieved and bewildered him. He dwelt upon this one idea until he lost the power of thinking of anything else. The one idea looked at perpetually became distorted to his mental vision. Repeat the commonest word in the English language twenty times, and before the twentieth repetition, you will have begun to wonder whether the word which you repeat is really the word you mean to utter. Robert Audley has thought of his friend's disappearance, until the one idea has done its fatal and unhealthy work. He looks at a common event with a vision that is diseased, and he distorts it into a gloomy horror engendered of his own monomania. "'If you do not want to make me as mad as he is, you must never let me see him again. He declared to-night that George Tallboys was murdered in this place, and that he will root up every tree in the garden, and pull down every brick in the house, and search for—' My lady paused. The words died away upon her lips. She had exhausted herself by the strange energy with which she had spoken—' She had been transformed from a frivolous, childish beauty into a woman, strong to argue her own cause, and plead her own defence. "'Pull down this house!' cried the baronet. "'George Tallboy's murdered at Audley Court. Did Robert say this, Lucy?' "'He said something of that kind—something that frightened me very much.' "'Then he must be mad,' said Sir Michael gravely. "'I'm bewildered by what you tell me. Did he really say this, Lucy? Or did you misunderstand him?" "'I—I don't think I did,' faltered my lady. You saw how frightened I was when I first came in. I should not have been so much agitated if he hadn't said something horrible." Lady Audley had availed herself of the very strongest arguments by which she could help her cause. "'To be sure, my darling, to be sure,' answered the baronet. What could have put such a horrible fancy into the unhappy boy's head? This Mr. Tallboys, a perfect stranger to all of us, murdered at Audley Court. I'll go to Mount Stanning to-night and see Robert. I have known him ever since he was a baby, and I cannot be deceived at him. If there is really anything wrong he will not be able to conceal it from me." My lady shrugged her shoulders. "'That is rather an open question,' she said. "'It is generally a stranger who is the first to observe any psychological peculiarity.' The big words sounded strange from my lady's rosy lips, but her newly adopted wisdom had a certain quaint prettiness about it, which charmed and bewildered her husband. "'But you must not go to Mount Stanning, my dear darling,' she said tenderly. Remember that you are under strict orders to stay indoors until the weather is milder, and the sun shines upon this cruel, ice-bound country." Sir Michael Audley sank back in his capacious chair with a sigh of resignation. "'That's true, Lucy,' he said. We must obey Mr. Dawson. I suppose Robert will come to see me to-morrow." "'Yes, dear. I think he said he would." "'Then we must wait till to-morrow, my darling. I can't believe that there is anything really wrong with the poor boy. I can't believe it, Lucy." "'Then how do you account for this extraordinary delusion about this Mr. Tallboys?' asked my lady. Sir Michael shook his head. "'I don't know, Lucy. I don't know,' he answered." "'It is always so difficult to believe that any one of the calamities that continually befall our fellow-men will ever happen to us. I can't believe that my nephew's mind is impaired. I can't believe it. I—I'll get him to stop here, Lucy, and I'll watch him closely. I tell you, my love, if there is anything wrong, I am sure to find it out. I can't be mistaken in a young man who has always been the same to me as my own son. But, my darling, why were you so frightened by Robert's wild talk? It could not affect you.' My lady sighed piteously. "'You must think me very strong-minded, Sir Michael,' she said, with rather an injured air. "'If you imagine I can hear of these sorts of things indifferently, I know I shall never be able to see Mr. Audley again.' "'And you shall not, my dear, you shall not.' "'You said just now you would have him here,' murmured Lady Audley. "'But I will not, my darling girl, if his presence annoys you. Good heaven! Lucy, can you imagine for a moment that I have any higher wish than to promote your happiness?' I will consult some London physician about Robert, and let him discover if there is really anything the matter with my poor brother's only son. You shall not be annoyed, Lucy." "'You must think me very unkind, dear,' said my lady. And I know I ought not to be annoyed by the poor fellow. But he really seems to have taken some absurd notion into his head about me." "'About you, Lucy?' cried Sir Michael. "'Yes, dear. He seems to connect me in some vague manner, which I cannot quite understand with the disappearance of this Mr. Tallboys. Impossible, Lucy! You must have misunderstood him. I don't think so. Then he must be mad, said the baronet. He must be mad. I will wait till he goes back to town, and then send someone to his chambers to talk to him. Good heaven! What a mysterious business this is! I fear I have distressed you, darling, murmured Lady Audley. Yes, my dear. I am very much distressed by what you have told me but you were quite right to talk to me frankly about this dreadful business. I must think it over, dearest, and try and decide what is best to be done. My lady rose from the low ottoman on which she had been seated. The fire had burned down, and there was only a faint glow of red light in the room. Lucy oddly bent over her husband's chair, and put her lips to his broad forehead. "'How good you have always been to me, dear,' she whispered softly. "'You would never let any one influence you against me, would you, dear?' "'Influence me against you,' repeated the baronet. "'No, my love.' "'Because you know, dear,' pursued my lady, "'there are wicked people as well as mad people in the world, "'and there may be some persons to whose interest it would be to injure me.' "'They had better not try it, then, my dear,' answered Sir Michael. "'They would find themselves in rather a dangerous position if they did.' Lady Audley laughed aloud, with a gay, triumphant, silvery peal of laughter that vibrated through the quiet room. "'My own dear darling,' she said, "'I know you love me. And now I must run away, dear, for it's past seven o'clock. I was engaged to dine at Mrs. Montford's, but I must send a groom with a message of apology, for Mr. Audley has made me quite unfit for company. I shall stay at home and nurse you, dear. You'll go to bed very early, won't you, and take great care of yourself?' "'Yes, dear,' My lady tripped out of the room to give her orders about the message that was to be carried to the house at which she was to have dined. She paused for a moment as she closed the library door. She paused, and laid her hand about her breast, to check the rapid throbbing of her heart. "'I have been afraid of you, Mr. Robert Audley,' she thought. "'But perhaps the time may come in which you will have cause to be afraid of me.'" End of Chapter 30 Chapter 31 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 31 Phoebe's Petition. The division between Lady Audley and her stepdaughter had not become any narrower in the two months which had elapsed since the pleasant Christmas-holiday time had been kept at Audley Court. There was no open warfare between the two women—there was only an armed neutrality, broken every now and then by brief feminine skirmishes and transient wordy tempests. I am sorry to say that Alicia would very much have preferred a hearty pitched battle, to this silent and undemonstrative disunion, but it was not very easy to quarrel with my lady. She had soft answers for the turning away of wrath. She could smile bewitchingly at her stepdaughter's open petulance, and laugh merrily at the young lady's ill-temper. Perhaps had she been less amiable, had she been more like Alicia in disposition, the two ladies might have expended their enmity in one tremendous quarrel, and might ever afterward have been affectionate and friendly. But Lucy Audley would not make war. She carried forward the sum of her dislike, and put it out at a steady rate of interest, until the breach between her stepdaughter and herself, widening a little every day, became a great gulf, utterly impassable by olive-branch-bearing doves from either side of the abyss. There can be no reconciliation where there is no open warfare. There must be a battle, a brave, boisterous battle, with pennants waving and cannon roaring, before there can be peaceful treaties and enthusiastic shaking of hands. Perhaps the union between France and England owes its greatest force to the recollection of Cressy and Waterloo— navarino and trafalgar we have hated each other and licked each other and had it out as the common phrase goes and we can afford now to fall into each other's arms and vow eternal friendship and everlasting brotherhood let us hope that when northern yankeedom has decimated and been decimated blustering jonathan may fling himself upon his southern brother's breast forgiving and forgiven alicia audley and her father's pretty wife had plenty of room for the comfortable indulgence of their dislike in the spacious old mansion My lady had her own apartments, as we know, luxurious chambers, in which all conceivable elegancies had been gathered for the comfort of their occupant. Alicia had her own rooms in another part of the large house. She had her favorite mare, her Newfoundland dog, and her drawing materials, and she made herself tolerably happy. She was not very happy, this frank, generous-hearted girl, for it was scarcely possible that she could altogether be at ease in the constrained atmosphere of the court. Her father was changed— that dear father over whom she had once reigned supreme with the boundless authority of a spoiled child, had accepted another ruler, and submitted to a new dynasty. Little by little, my lady's petty power made itself felt in that narrow household, and Alicia saw her father gradually lured across the gulf that divided Lady Audley from her stepdaughter, until he stood at last quite upon the other side of the abyss, and looked coldly upon his only child across that widening chasm. Alicia felt that he was lost to her. My lady's beaming smiles, my lady's winning words, my lady's radiant glances and bewitching graces had done their work of enchantment, and Sir Michael had grown to look upon his daughter as a somewhat wilful and capricious young person, who had behaved with determined unkindness to the wife he loved. Poor Alicia saw all this, and bore her burden as well as she could. It seemed very hard to be a handsome, grey-eyed heiress, with dogs and horses and servants at her command, and yet to be so much alone in the world— as to know of not one friendly ear into which she might pour her sorrows. "'If Bob was good for anything, I could have told him how unhappy I am,' thought Miss Audley. "'But I may just as well tell Caesar my troubles for any consolation I should get from Cousin Robert.' Sir Michael Audley obeyed his pretty nurse, and went to bed a little after nine o'clock upon this bleak March evening. Perhaps the baronet's bedroom was about the pleasantest retreat that an invalid could have chosen in such cold and cheerless weather— the dark green velvet curtains were drawn before the windows, and about the ponderous bed. The wood fire burned redly upon the broad hearth. The reading-lamp was lighted upon a delicious little table close to Sir Michael's pillow, and a heap of magazines and newspapers had been arranged by my lady's own fair hands for the pleasure of the invalid. Lady Audley sat by the bedside for about ten minutes, talking to her husband—talking very seriously—about this strange and awful question—Robert Audley's lunacy, but at the end of that time she rose and bade her husband good-night. She lowered the green silk shade before the reading-lamp, adjusting it carefully for the repose of the baronet's eyes. "'I shall leave you, dear,' she said. "'If you can sleep, so much the better. If you wish to read, the books and papers are close to you. I will leave the doors between the rooms open, and I shall hear your voice if you call me.' Lady Audley went through her dressing-room into the boudoir, where she had sat with her husband since dinner. Every evidence of womanly refinement was visible in the elegant chamber. My lady's piano was open, covered with scattered sheets of music and exquisitely bound collections of skenas and fantasias which no master need have disdained to study. My lady's easel stood near the window, bearing witness to my lady's artistic talent, in the shape of a water-colored sketch of the court and gardens. My lady's fairy-like embroideries of lace and muslin, rainbow-hued silks, and delicately tinted wools littered the luxurious apartment while the looking-glasses, cunningly placed at angles and opposite corners by an artistic upholsterer, multiplied my lady's image, and in that image reflected the most beautiful object in the enchanted chamber. Amid all this lamplight, gilding, color, wealth, and beauty, Lucy Audley sat down on a low seat by the fire to think. If Mr. Holman Hunt could have peeped into the pretty boudoir— I think the picture would have been photographed upon his brain to be reproduced by and by, upon a bishop's half-length for the glorification of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. My lady, in that half-recumbent attitude, with her elbow resting on one knee, and her perfect chin supported by her hand, the rich folds of drapery falling away in long undulating lines from the exquisite outline of her figure, and the luminous rose-coloured firelight enveloping her in a soft haze, only broken by the golden glitter of her yellow hair, beautiful in herself, but made bewilderingly beautiful by the gorgeous surroundings which adorn the shrine of her loveliness—drinking cups of gold and ivory, chiselled by Benvenuto Cellini, cabinets of buell and porcelain, bearing the cipher of Austrian Marie Antoinette, amid devices of rosebuds and true-lover's knots, birds and butterflies, cupidons and shepherdesses, goddesses, courtiers, cottagers, and milkmaids, statuettes of Parisian marble and biscuit china, gilded baskets of hothouse flowers— Fantastical caskets of Indian filigree work, fragile teacups of turquoise china adorned by medallion miniatures of Louis the Great and Louis the Well-Beloved, Louise de La Vallière, Athenaide de Montespan, and Marie Jeanne Gombard de Vaubernier, cabinet pictures and gilded mirrors, shimmering satin and diaphanous lace—all that gold can buy or art devise—had been gathered together for the beautification of this quiet chamber, in which my lady sat listening to the morning of the shrill March wind and the flapping of the ivy-leaves against the casements, and looking into the red chasms and the burning coals. I should be preaching a very stale sermon, and harping upon a very familiar moral, if I were to seize this opportunity of declaiming against art and beauty, because my lady was more wretched in this elegant apartment than many a half-starved seamstress in her dreary garret. She was wretched by reason of a wound which lay too deep for the possibility of any solace from such plasters as wealth and luxury but her wretchedness was of an abnormal nature, and I can see no occasion for seizing upon the fact of her misery as an argument in favour of poverty and discomfort as opposed to opulence. The Benvenuto Cellini carvings, and the Sevra porcelain, could not give her happiness, because she had passed out of their region. She was no longer innocent, and the pleasure we take in art and loveliness, being an innocent pleasure, had passed beyond her reach. Six or seven years before— She would have been happy in the possession of this little Aladdin's palace, but she had wandered out of the circle of careless, pleasure-seeking creatures. She had strayed far away into a desolate labyrinth of guilt and treachery, terror and crime, and all the treasures that had been collected for her could have given her no pleasure but one—the pleasure of flinging them into a heap beneath her feet, and trampling upon them, and destroying them in her cruel despair. There were some things that would have inspired her with an awful joy, a horrible rejoicing. If Robert Audley, her pitiless enemy, her unrelenting pursuer, had lain dead in the adjoining chamber, she would have exulted over his bier. What pleasures could have remained for Lucretia Borgia and Catherine de' Medici, when the dreadful boundary line between innocence and guilt was passed, and the lost creature stood upon the lonely outer side? Only horrible, vengeful joys and treacherous delights were left for these miserable women— With what disdainful bitterness they must have watched the frivolous vanities, the petty deceptions, the paltry sins of ordinary offenders! Perhaps they took a horrible pride in the enormity of their wickedness, in this divinity of hell, which made them greatest among sinful creatures. My lady, brooding by the fire in her lonely chamber, with her large clear blue eyes fixed upon the yawning gulfs of lurid crimson and the burning coals, may have thought of many things very far away from the terribly silent struggle in which she was engaged. She may have thought of long-ago years of childish innocence, childish follies, and selfishness, of frivolous feminine sins that had weighed very lightly upon her conscience. Perhaps in that retrospective reverie, she recalled that early time in which she had first looked in the glass, and discovered that she was beautiful— that fatal early time in which she had first begun to look upon her loveliness as a right divine, a boundless possession which was to be a set-off against all girlish shortcomings, a counterbalance of every youthful sin. Did she remember the day in which that fairy dower of beauty had first taught her to be selfish and cruel, indifferent to the joys and sorrows of others, cold-hearted and capricious, greedy of admiration, exacting and tyrannical with that petty woman's tyranny which is the worst of despotism, Did she trace every sin of her life back to its true source? And did she discover that poisoned fountain in her own exaggerated estimate of the value of a pretty face? Surely, if her thoughts wandered so far along the backward current of her life, she must have repented in bitterness and despair of that first day in which the master passions of her life had become her rulers, and the three demons of vanity, selfishness, and ambition had joined hands and said, "'This woman is our slave. Let us see what she will become under our guidance.' How small those first youthful airs seemed as my lady looked back upon them in that long reverie by the lonely hearth! What small vanities! What petty cruelties! A triumph over a schoolfellow, a flirtation with the lover of a friend, an assertion of the right divine invested in blue eyes and shimmering golden-tinted hair! But how terribly that narrow pathway had widened out into the broad highroad of sin, and how swift the footsteps had become upon the now familiar way! My lady twisted her fingers in her loose amber curls, and made as if she would have torn them from her head. But even in that moment of mute despair the unyielding dominion of beauty asserted itself, and she released the poor tangled glitter of ringlets, leaving them to make a halo round her head in the dim firelight. "'I was not wicked when I was young,' she thought, as she stared gloomingly at the fire. "'I was only thoughtless. I never did any harm—at least, wilfully. "'Have I ever been really wicked, I wonder?' she mused. "'My worst wickednesses have been the result of wild impulses, and not of deeply laid plots. "'I am not like the women I have read of, who have lain night after night in the horrible darkness and stillness, "'planning out treacherous deeds, and arranging every circumstance of an appointed crime. "'I wonder whether they suffered, those women, whether they ever suffered as—' Her thoughts wandered away into a weary maze of confusion. Suddenly she drew herself up with a proud, defiant gesture, and her eyes glittered with a light that was not entirely reflected from the fire. "'You are mad, Mr. Robert Audley,' she said. "'You are mad, and your fancies are a madman's fancies. I know what madness is. I know its signs and tokens, and I say that you are mad.' She put her hand to her head as if thinking of something which confused and bewildered her, and which she found it difficult to contemplate with calmness. Dare I defy him? she muttered. Dare I? Dare I? Will he stop, now that he has once gone so far? Will he stop for fear of me? Will he stop for fear of me when the thought of what his uncle must suffer has not stopped him? Will anything stop him but death? She pronounced the last words in an awful whisper, and with her head bent forward, her eyes dilated, and her lips still parted as they had been parted in her utterance of that final word, death she sat blankly staring at the fire. "'I can't plot horrible things,' she muttered presently. "'My brain isn't strong enough, or I'm not wicked enough, or brave enough. If I met Robert Audley in those lonely gardens, as I—' The current of her thoughts was interrupted by a cautious knocking at her door. She rose suddenly, startled by any sound in the stillness of her room. She rose and threw herself into a low chair near the fire. She flung her beautiful head back upon the soft cushions— and took a book from the table near her. Insignificant as this action was, it spoke very plainly. It spoke very plainly of ever-recurring fears, of fatal necessities for concealment, of a mind that in its silent agonies was ever alive to the importance of outward effect. It told more plainly than anything else could have told, how complete an actress my lady had been made by the awful necessity of her life. The modest rap at the door was repeated. "'Come in! cried Lady Audley, in her liveliest tone. The door was opened with that respectful noiselessness peculiar to a well-bred servant, and a young woman, plainly dressed, and carrying some of the cold March winds in the fold of her garments, crossed the threshold of the apartment, and lingered near the door, waiting permission to approach the inner regions of my lady's retreat. It was Phoebe Marks, the pale-faced wife of the Mount Stanning innkeeper. "'I beg pardon, my lady, for intruding without leave,' she said but I thought I might venture to come straight up without waiting for permission. "'Yes, yes, Phoebe, to be sure. Take off your bonnet, you wretched, cold-looking creature, and come sit down here.' Lady Audley pointed to the low ottoman upon which she had herself been seated a few minutes before. The lady's maid had often sat upon it, listening to her mistress's prattle in the old days, when she had been my lady's chief companion and confidant. "'Sit down here, Phoebe,' Lady Audley repeated. "'Sit down here and talk to me.' I am very glad you came here to-night. I was horribly lonely in this dreary place. My lady shivered and looked round at the bright collection of bric-a-brac, as if the sevres and bronze, the Buell and ormolu, had been the mouldering adornments of some ruined castle. The dreary wretchedness of her thoughts had communicated itself to every object about her, and all outer things took their colour from that weary inner life, which held its slow course of secret anguish in her breast. She had spoken the entire truth in saying that she was glad of her lady's maid's visit, Her frivolous nature clung to this weak shelter in the hour of her fear and suffering. There were sympathies between her and this girl, who was like herself, inwardly as well as outwardly—like herself, selfish, and cold and cruel, eager for her own advancement, and greedy of opulence and elegance, angry with the lot that had been cast her, and weary of dull dependence. My lady hated Alicia for her frank, passionate, generous, daring nature. She hated her stepdaughter— and clung to this pale-faced, pale-haired girl, whom she thought neither better nor worse than herself. Phoebe Marks obeyed her late mistress's commands, and took off her bonnet before seating herself on the ottoman at Lady Audley's feet. Her smooth bands of light hair were unruffled by the march winds. Her trimly-made drab dress and linen collar were as neatly arranged as they could have been had she only that moment completed her toilet. "'Sir Michael is better, I hope, my lady,' she said. "'Yes, Phoebe, much better. He is asleep. You may close that door,' added Lady Audley, with a motion of her head toward the door of communication between the rooms, which had been left open. Mrs. Marks obeyed submissively, and then returned to her seat. "'I am very, very unhappy, Phoebe,' my lady said fretfully, "'wretchedly miserable.' "'About the secret?' asked Mrs. Marks, in a half-whisper. My lady did not notice that question— She resumed in the same complaining tone. She was glad to be able to complain even to this lady's maid. She had brooded over her fears, and had suffered in secret so long, that it was an inexpressible relief to her to bemoan her fate aloud. "'I am cruelly persecuted and harassed, Phoebe Marks,' she said. "'I am pursued and tormented by a man whom I never injured, whom I have never wished to injure. I am never suffered to rest by this relentless tormentor, and—' She paused, staring at the fire again, as she had done in her loneliness—' Lost again in the dark intricacies of thought which wandered hither and thither, in a dreadful chaos of terrified bewilderments, she could not come to any fixed conclusion. Phoebe Marks watched my lady's face, looking upward at her late mistress with pale, anxious eyes, that only relaxed their watchfulness when Lady Audley's glance met that of her companion. "'I think I know whom you mean, my lady,' said the innkeeper's wife, after a pause. "'I think I know who it is who is so cruel to you.' "'Oh, of course!' answered my lady bitterly. "'My secrets are everybody's secrets. You know all about it, no doubt.' "'The person is a gentleman. Is he not, my lady?' "'Yes.' "'A gentleman who came to the castle inn two months ago, when I warned you—' "'Yes, yes,' answered my lady impatiently. "'I thought so. The same gentleman is at our place to-night, my lady.' Lady Audley started up from her chair, started up as if she would have done something desperate in her despairing fury— But she sank back again with a weary, querulous sigh. What warfare could such a feeble creature wage against her fate? What could she do but wind like a hunted hare till she found her way back to the starting point of the cruel chase, to be there trampled down by her pursuers? "'At the castle inn,' she cried, "'I might have known as much. He has gone there to wring my secrets from your husband. Fool!' she exclaimed, suddenly turning upon Phoebe Marks in a transport of anger. Do you want to destroy me that you have left those two men together?" Mrs. Marks clasped her hands piteously. "'I didn't come away of my own free will, my lady,' she said. No one could have been more unwilling to leave the house than I was this night. I was sent here.' "'Who sent you here?' "'Luke, my lady. You can't tell how hard he can be upon me if I go against him.' "'Why did he send you?' The innkeeper's wife dropped her eyelids under Lady Audley's angry glances and hesitated confusedly before she answered this question. "'Indeed, my lady,' she stammered, "'I didn't want to come. I told Luke that it was too bad for us to worry you, first asking this favour, and then asking that, and never leaving you alone for a month together. But—but he bore me down with his loud, blustering talk, and he made me come.' "'Yes, yes,' cried Lady Audley, impatiently. "'I know that. I want to know why you have come.' "'Why, you know, my lady,' answered Phoebe, half-reluctantly, "'Luke is very extravagant, and all I can say to him, I can't get him to be careful or steady. He's not sober, and when he's drinking with a lot of rough countrymen, and drinking perhaps even more than they do, it isn't likely that his head can be very clear for accounts. If it hadn't been for me we should have been ruined before this, and hard as I've tried I haven't been able to keep the ruin off. You remember giving me the money for the brewer's bill, my lady?' "'Yes, I remember very well,' answered Lucy oddly, with a bitter laugh for I wanted that money to pay my own bills. I know you did, my lady, and it was very, very hard for me to have to come and ask you for it, after all that we'd received from you before. But that isn't the worst. When Luke sent me down here to beg the favour of that help, he never told me that the Christmas rent was still owing. But it was, my lady, and it's owing now, and—and and there's a bailiff in the house tonight, and we're to be sold up to-morrow unless— "'Unless I pay your rent, I suppose.' cried Lucy oddly. I might have guessed what was coming. "'Indeed—indeed, my lady, I wouldn't have asked it,' sobbed Phoebe Marks. "'But he made me come.' "'Yes,' answered my lady bitterly. "'He made you come. And he will make you come whenever he pleases, and whenever he wants money for the gratification of his low vices. And you and he are my pensioners as long as I live, or as long as I have any money to give.' "'for I suppose when my purse is empty and my credit ruined, "'you and your husband will turn upon me "'and sell me to the highest bidder. "'Do you know, Phoebe Marks, "'that my jewel-case has been half empty to meet your claims? "'Did you know that my pin-money, "'which I thought such a princely allowance "'when my marriage settlement was made, "'and when I was a poor governess at Mr. Dawson's, "'heaven help me, "'my pin-money has been overdrawn half a year "'to satisfy your demands? "'What can I do to appease you? "'Shall I sell my Marie Antoinette cabinet?' or my Pompadour china, Leroy's and Benson's Ormilou clocks, or my gobelin tapestry chairs and ottomans? How shall I satisfy you next?' "'Oh, my lady, my lady!' cried Phoebe, piteously. "'Don't be so cruel to me. You know, you know that it isn't I who want to impose upon you.' "'I know nothing,' exclaimed Lady Audley, "'except that I am the most miserable of women.' "'Let me think,' she cried, silencing Phoebe's consolatory murmurs, with an imperious gesture, "'Hold your tongue, girl, and let me think of this business if I can.' She put her hands to her forehead, clasping her slender fingers across her brow, as if she would have controlled the action of her brain by their convulsive pressure. "'Robert Audley is with your husband,' she said slowly, speaking to herself rather than to her companion. "'These two men are together, and they are bailiffs in the house.' and your brutal husband is no doubt brutally drunk by this time, and brutally obstinate and ferocious in his drunkenness. If I refuse to pay this money, his ferocity will be multiplied by a hundredfold. There's little use in discussing that matter. The money must be paid.' "'But if you do pay it,' said Phoebe earnestly, "'I hope you will impress upon Luke that it is the last money you will ever give him while he stops in that house.' "'Why?' asked Lady oddly, letting her hands fall on her lap and looking inquiringly at Mrs. Marks. "'Because I want Luke to leave the castle.' "'But why do you want him to leave?' "'Oh, for ever so many reasons, my lady,' answered Phoebe. "'He's not fit to be the landlord of a public house. I didn't know that when I married him, or I would have gone against the business, and tried to persuade him to take to the farming line. Not that I suppose he'd have given up his own fancy, either. For he's obstinate enough, as you know, my lady. He's not fit for his present business.' He's scarcely ever sober after dark, and when he's drunk he gets almost wild, and doesn't seem to know what he does. We've had two or three narrow escapes with him already." "'Narrow escapes?' repeated Lady Audley. "'What do you mean?' "'Why, we've run the risk of being burnt in our beds through his carelessness.' "'Burnt in your beds through his carelessness? Why, how is that?' asked my lady rather listlessly. She was too selfish, and too deeply absorbed in her own troubles, to take much interest in any danger which had befallen her sometime lady's maid. You know what a queer old place the castle is, my lady—all tumble-down woodwork and rotten rafters and such like. The Chelmsford Insurance Company won't insure it, for they say if the place did happen to catch fire of a windy night, it would blaze away like so much tinder, and nothing in the world could save it. Well, Luke knows this, and the landlord has warned him of it time and often, for he lives close against us and he keeps a pretty sharp eye upon all my husband's goings-on. But when Luke's tipsy, he doesn't know what he's about. And only a week ago he left a candle burning in one of the outhouses, and the flame caught one of the rafters of the sloping roof. And if it hadn't been for me finding it out when I went round the house the last thing, we should have all been burnt to death, perhaps. And that's the third time the same kind of thing has happened in the six months we've had the place. And you can't wonder that I'm frightened, can you, my lady?' My lady had not wondered. She had not thought about the business at all. She had scarcely listened to these commonplace details. Why should she care for this low-born waiting-woman's perils and troubles? Had she not her own terrors, her own soul-absorbing perplexities, to usurp every thought of which her brain was capable? She did not make any remark upon that which poor Phoebe just told her. She scarcely comprehended what had been said, until some moments after the girl had finished speaking, when the words assumed their full meaning, as some words do after they have been heard without being heeded. "'Burnt in your beds?' said the young lady at last. It would have been a good thing for me if that precious creature, your husband, had been burnt in his bed before to-night. A vivid picture had flashed upon her as she spoke—the picture of that frail wooden tenement, the Castle Inn, reduced to a roofless chaos of lath and plaster, vomiting flames from its black mouth, and spitting blazing sparks upward toward the cold night sky. She gave a weary sigh as she dismissed this image from her restless brain. She would be no better off, even if this enemy should be forever silenced. She had another, and far more dangerous foe—a foe who was not to be bribed or bought off, though she had been as rich as an empress. "'I'll give you the money to send this bailiff away,' my lady said, after a pause. "'I must give you the last sovereign in my purse. But what of that? You know as well as I do that I dare not refuse you.' Lady Audley rose and took the lighted lamp from her writing-table. "'The money is in my dressing-room,' she said. I will go and fetch it." "'Oh, my lady!' exclaimed Phoebe suddenly. "'I forgot something. I was in such a way about this business that I quite forgot it." "'Quite forgot what?' "'A letter that was given me to bring you, my lady, just before I left home.' "'What letter?' "'A letter from Mr. Audley. He heard my husband mention that I was coming down here, and he asked me to carry this letter. Lady Audley set the lamp down upon the table nearest to her, and held out her hand to receive the letter." Phoebe Marks could scarcely fail to observe that the little jeweled hand shook like a leaf. "'Give it me! Give it me!' she cried. "'Let me see what more he has to say.' Lady Audley almost snatched the letter from Phoebe's hand in her wild impatience. She tore open the envelope and flung it from her. She could scarcely unfold the sheet of note paper in her eager excitement. The letter was very brief. It contained only these words. "'Should Mrs. George Tallboys really have survived the date of her supposed death?' as recorded in the public prints, and upon the tombstone in the Ventnor churchyard, and should she exist in the person of the lady suspected and accused by the writer of this, there can be no great difficulty in finding some one able and willing to identify her. Mrs. Barkham, the owner of North Cottages, Wildernsea, would no doubt consent to throw some light upon this matter, either to dispel a delusion, or to confirm a suspicion. Robert Audley. March 3, 1859. The Castle Inn. Mount Stanning. End of chapter thirty one. Chapter thirty two of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon CHAPTER Thirty Two, THE RED LIGHT IN THE SKY My lady crushed the letter fiercely in her hand, and flung it from her into the flames. "'If he stood before me now, and I could kill him,' she muttered in a strange inward whisper, "'I would do it—I would do it!' She snatched up the lamp, and rushed into the adjoining room. She shut the door behind her. She could not endure any witness of her horrible despair. She could endure nothing, neither herself nor her surroundings. The door between my lady's dressing-room and the bedchamber in which Sir Michael lay had been left open. The baronet slept peacefully, his noble face plainly visible in the subdued lamplight. His breathing was low and regular, his lips curved into a half-smile, a smile of tender happiness, which he often wore when he looked at his beautiful wife— the smile of an all-indulgent father, who looks admiringly at his favourite child. Some touch of womanly feeling, some sentiment of compassion, softened Lady Audley's glance, as it fell upon that noble reposing figure. For a moment, the horrible egotism of her own misery yielded to her pitying tenderness for another. It was perhaps only a semi-selfish tenderness, after all, in which pity for herself was as powerful as pity for her husband. But, for once in a way, Her thoughts ran out of the narrow groove of her own terrors and her own troubles, to dwell with prophetic grief upon the coming sorrows of another. "'If they make him believe, how wretched he will be,' she thought. But intermingled with that thought there was another. There was the thought of her lovely face, her bewitching manner, her arch smile— her low, musical laugh, which was like a peal of silvery bells ringing across a broad expanse of flat meadowland and a rippling river in the misty summer evening. She thought of all these things with a transient thrill of triumph, which was stronger even than her terror. If Sir Michael Audley lived to be a hundred years old, whatever he might learn to believe of her, however he might grow to despise her, would he ever be able to disassociate her from these attributes? No. A thousand times, no. To the last hour of his life his memory would present her to him, invested with the loveliness that had first won his enthusiastic admiration—his devoted affection. Her worst enemies could not rob her of that fairy dower, which had been so fatal in its influence upon her frivolous mind. She paced up and down the dressing-room in the silvery lamplight, pondering upon the strange letter which she had received from Robert Audley. She walked backward and forward in that monotonous wandering for some time, before she was able to steady her thoughts, before she was able to bring the scattered forces of her narrow intellect to bear upon the one all-important subject of the threat contained in the barrister's letter. "'He will do it,' she said, between her set teeth. "'He will do it, unless I get him into a lunatic asylum first, or unless—' She did not finish the thought in words. She did not even think out the sentence— but some new and unnatural impulse in her heart seemed to beat each syllable against her breast. The thought was this— He will do it, unless some strange calamity befalls him, and silences him for ever. The red blood flashed up into my lady's face with as sudden and transient a blaze as the flickering flame of a fire, and died as suddenly away, leaving her more pale than winter snow. Her hands, which had before been locked convulsively together, fell apart and dropped heavily at her sides. She stopped in her rapid pacing to and fro—stopped, as Lot's wife may have stopped, after that fatal backward glance at the perishing city, with every pulse slackening, with every drop of blood congealing in her veins, in the terrible process that was to transform her from a woman into a statue. Lady Audley stood still for about five minutes in that strangely statuesque attitude her head erect, her eyes staring straight before her, staring far beyond the narrow boundary of her chamber wall, into dark distances of peril and horror. But by and by she started from that rigid attitude almost as abruptly as she had fallen into it. She roused herself from that semi-lethargy, she walked rapidly to her dressing-table, and seating herself before it, pushed away the litter of golden-stoppered bottles and delicate china-essence-boxes, and looked at her reflection in the large oval glass. She was very pale." but there was no other trace of agitation visible in her girlish face. The lines of her exquisitely moulded lips were so beautiful, that it was only a very close observer who could have perceived a certain rigidity that was unusual to them. She saw this herself, and tried to smile away that statue-like immobility. But to-night the rosy lips refused to obey her. They were firmly locked, and were no longer the slaves of her will and pleasure. All the latent forces of her character concentrated themselves in this one feature. She might command her eyes, but she could not control the muscles of her mouth. She rose from before her dressing-table, and took a dark velvet cloak and bonnet from the recesses of her wardrobe, and dressed herself for walking. The little ormolu clock on the chimney-piece struck the quarter after eleven, while Lady Audley was employed in this manner. Five minutes afterward she re-entered the room in which she had left Phoebe Marks. The innkeeper's wife was sitting before the low fender, very much in the same attitude as that in which her late mistress had brooded over that lonely hearth earlier in the evening. Phoebe had replenished the fire, and had reassumed her bonnet and shawl. She was anxious to get home to that brutal husband, who was only too apt to fall into some mischief in her absence. She looked up as Lady Audley entered the room, and uttered an exclamation of surprise at seeing her late mistress in a walking costume. "'My lady,' she cried, "'you are not going out to-night.' "'Yes, I am, Phoebe,' Lady Audley answered very quietly. "'I am going to Mount Stanning with you to see this bailiff, and to pay and dismiss him myself.' "'But, my lady, you forget what the time is. You can't go out at such an hour.' Lady Audley did not answer. She stood with her finger resting lightly upon the handle of the bell, meditating quietly. "'The stables are always locked, and the men in bed by ten o'clock,' she murmured, "'when we are at home. It will make a terrible hubbub to get a carriage ready.' But yet, I dare say, one of the servants could manage the matter quietly for me." "'But why should you go to-night, my lady?' cried Phoebe Marks. "'To-morrow will do quite as well—a week hence will do as well. Our landlord would take the man away if he had your promise to settle the debt." Lady Audley took no notice of this interruption. She went hastily into the dressing-room, and flung off her bonnet and cloak, and then returned to the boudoir in her simple dinner costume, with her curls brushed carelessly away from her face. Now, Phoebe Marks, listen to me," she said, grasping her confidant's wrist, and speaking in a low, earnest voice, but with a certain imperious air that challenged contradiction and commanded obedience. "'Listen to me, Phoebe,' she repeated. "'I am going to the castle inn to-night. Whether it is early or late is of very little consequence to me. I have set my mind upon going, and I shall go. You have asked me why, and I have told you. I am going in order that I may pay this debt myself.' and that I may see for myself that the money I give is applied to the purpose for which I give it. There is nothing out of the common course of life in my doing this. I am going to do what other women in my position very often do—I am going to assist a favourite servant." "'But it's getting on for twelve o'clock, my lady,' pleaded Phoebe. Lady Audley frowned impatiently at this interruption. "'If my going to your house to pay this man should be known,' she continued, still retaining her hold of Phoebe's wrist. I am ready to answer for my conduct. But I would rather that the business should be kept quiet. I think that I can leave this house without being seen by any living creature, if you will do as I tell you. "'I will do anything you wish, my lady,' answered Phoebe submissively. "'Then you will wish me good-night presently, when my maid comes into the room, and you will suffer her to show you out of the house. You will cross the courtyard and wait for me in the avenue upon the other side of the archway. It may be half an hour before I am able to join you for I must not leave my room till the servants have all gone to bed. But you may wait for me patiently, for come what may, I will join you." Lady Audley's face was no longer pale. An unnatural luster gleamed in her great blue eyes. She spoke with an unnatural rapidity. She had altogether the appearance and manner of a person who has yielded to the dominant influence of some overpowering excitement. Phoebe Marks stared at her late mistress in mute bewilderment. She began to fear that my lady was going mad. The bell which Lady Audley rang was answered by the smart lady's maid, who wore rose-coloured ribbons, and black silk gowns, and other adornments which were unknown to the humble people, who sat below the salt in the good old days when servants wore linsey Woolsey. "'I did not know that it was so late, Martin,' said my lady, in that gentle tone which always won for her the willing service of her inferiors. "'I have been talking with Mrs. Marks, and have let the time slip by me. I shan't want anything to-night, so you may go to bed when you please.' "'Thank you, my lady,' answered the girl, who looked very sleepy, and had some difficulty in repressing a yawn even in her mistress's presence, for the Audley household usually kept very early hours. "'I'd better show Mrs. Marks out, my lady, hadn't I?' asked the maid, "'before I go to bed?' "'Oh, yes, to be sure. You can let Phoebe out. All the other servants have gone to bed, then, I suppose.' "'Yes, my lady.' Lady Audley laughed as she glanced at the timepiece. "'We have been terrible dissipated up here, Phoebe,' she said. "'Good-night. You may tell your husband that his rent shall be paid.' "'Thank you very much, my lady, and good-night,' murmured Phoebe as she backed out of the room, followed by the lady's maid. Lady Audley listened at the door, waiting till the muffled sounds of their footsteps died away in the octagon chamber and on the carpeted staircase. "'Martin sleeps at the top of the house,' she said, "'half a mile away from this room.' In ten minutes I may safely make my escape." She went back into her dressing-room and put on her cloak and bonnet for the second time. The unnatural colour still burnt like a flame in her cheeks. The unnatural light still glittered in her eyes. The excitement which she was under held her in so strong a spell, that neither her mind nor her body seemed to have any consciousness of fatigue. However verbose I may be in my description of her feelings, I can never describe a tithe of her thoughts or her sufferings. She suffered agonies that would fill closely printed volumes, bulky with a thousand pages in that one horrible night. She underwent volumes of anguish and doubt and perplexity, sometimes repeating the same chapters of her torments over and over again, sometimes hurrying through a thousand pages of her misery without one pause, without one moment of breathing-time. She stood by the low fender in her boudoir, watching the minute-hand of the clock, and waiting till it should be time for her to leave the house in safety. I will wait ten minutes," she said,—not a moment beyond, before I enter on my new peril. She listened to the wild roaring of the march wind, which seemed to have risen with the stillness and darkness of the night. The hand slowly made its inevitable way to the figures which told that ten minutes were past. It was exactly a quarter to twelve, when my lady took her lamp in her hand, and stole softly from the room. Her footfall was as light as that of some graceful wild animal and there was no fear of that airy step awakening any echo upon the carpeted stone corridors and staircase. She did not pause until she reached the vestibule upon the ground floor. Several doors opened out of the vestibule, which was octagon, like my lady's antechamber. One of these doors led into the library, and it was this door which Lady Audley opened softly and cautiously. To have attempted to leave the house secretly by any of the principal outlets would have been simple madness— For the housekeeper herself superintended the barricading of the great doors, back and front. The secrets of the bolts, and bars, and chains, and bells which secured these doors, and provided for the safety of Sir Michael Audley's plate-room, the door of which was lined with sheet-iron, were known only to the servants who had to deal with them. But although all these precautions were taken with the principal entrances to the citadel, a wooden shutter, and a slender iron bar, light enough to be lifted by a child, were considered sufficient safeguard for the half-glass door which opened out of the breakfast-room into the gravelled pathway and smooth turf in the courtyard. It was by this outlet that Lady Audley meant to make her escape. She could easily remove the bar and unfasten the shutter, and she might safely venture to leave the window ajar while she was absent. There was little fear of Sir Michael's awaking for some time, as he was a heavy sleeper in the early part of the night, and had slept more heavily than usual since his illness. Lady Audley crossed the library, and opened the door of the breakfast-room which communicated with it. This latter apartment was one of the later additions to the court. It was a simple, cheerful chamber, with brightly papered walls and pretty maple furniture, and was more occupied by Alicia than any one else. The paraphernalia of that young lady's favorite pursuits were scattered about the room—drawing materials, unfinished scraps of work, tangled skeins of silk, and all the other tokens of a careless damsel's presence, while Miss Audley's picture— a pretty crayon sketch of a rosy-faced hoyden in a riding-habit and hat, hung over the quaint Wedgwood ornaments on the chimney-piece. My lady looked upon these familiar objects with scornful hatred flaming in her blue eyes. "'How glad she will be if any disgrace befalls me,' she thought. "'How she will rejoice if I am driven out of this house!' Lady Audley set the lamp upon a table near the fireplace, and went to the window. She removed the iron bar and the light wooden shutter, and then opened the glass door. The March night was black and moonless, and a gust of wind blew in upon her as she opened the door, and filled the room with its chilly breath, extinguishing the lamp upon the table. "'No matter,' my lady muttered. "'I could not have left it burning. I shall know how to find my way through the house when I come back. I have left all the doors ajar.' She stepped quickly out upon the smooth gravel, and closed the glass door behind her, She was afraid lest that treacherous wind should blow to the door opening into the library, and thus betray her. She was in the quadrangle now, with that chill wind sweeping against her, and swirling her silken garments round her with a shrill rustling noise, like the whistling of a sharp breeze against the sails of a yacht. She crossed the quadrangle and looked back—looked back for a moment at the firelight gleaming between the rosy-tinted curtains in her boudoir, and the dim gleam of the lamp through the mullioned windows in the room where Sir Michael Audley lay asleep. I feel as if I were running away, she thought. I feel as if I were running away secretly in the dead of night, to lose myself and be forgotten. Perhaps it would be wiser in me to run away, to take this man's warning, and escape out of his power for ever. If I were to run away and disappear as—as as George Tallboys disappeared. But where could I go? What would become of me? I have no money. My jewels are not worth a couple of hundred pounds, now that I've got rid of the best part of them what could I do? I must go back to the old life—the old, hard, cruel, wretched life—the life of poverty, and humiliation, and vexation, and discontent. I should have to go back and wear myself out in that long struggle, and die, as my mother died, perhaps." My lady stood still for a moment on the smooth lawn between the quadrangle and the archway, with her head drooping upon her breast and her hands locked together, debating this question in the unnatural activity of her mind. Her attitude reflected the state of that mind—it expressed irresolution and perplexity. But presently a sudden change came over her. She lifted her head—lifted it with an action of defiance and determination. "'No, Mr. Robert Audley,' she said aloud, in a low, clear voice, "'I will not go back. I will not go back. If the struggle between us is to be a duel to the death, you shall not find me drop my weapon." She walked with a firm and rapid step under the archway. As she passed under that massive arch, it seemed as if she disappeared into some black gulf that had waited open to receive her. The stupid clock struck twelve, and the whole archway seemed to vibrate under its heavy strokes, as Lady Audley emerged upon the other side, and joined Phoebe Marks, who had waited for her late mistress very near the gateway of the court. "'Now, Phoebe,' she said, "'it is three miles from here to Mount Stanning, isn't it?' "'Yes, my lady.' Then we can walk the distance in an hour and a half." Lady Audley had not stopped to say this. She was walking quickly along the avenue with her humble companion by her side. Fragile and delicate as she was in appearance, she was a very good walker. She had been in the habit of taking long country rambles with Mr. Dawson's children in her old days of dependence, and she thought very little of a distance of three miles. "'Your beautiful husband will sit up for you, I suppose, Phoebe,' she said as they struck across an open field that was used as a short-cut from Audley Court to the high-road. "'Oh, yes, my lady, he's sure to sit up. He'll be drinking with the man, I dare say.' "'The man? What man?' "'The man that's in possession, my lady.' "'Ah, oh, to be sure,' said Lady Audley, indifferently. It was strange that Phoebe's domestic troubles should seem so very far from her thoughts, at the time she was taking such an extraordinary step towards setting things right at the castle Inn. The two women crossed the field and turned into the high road. The way to Mount Stanning was all uphill, and the long road looked black and dreary in the dark night. But my lady walked on with a desperate courage, which was no common constituent in her selfish, sensuous nature, but a strange faculty born out of her great despair. She did not speak again to her companion until they were close upon the glimmering lights at the top of the hill. One of these village lights, glaring redly through a crimson curtain marked out the particular window behind which it was likely that Luke Marks sat nodding drowsily over his liquor, and waiting for the coming of his wife. "'He has not gone to bed, Phoebe,' said my lady eagerly. "'But there is no other light burning at the inn. I suppose Mr. Audley is in bed and asleep.' "'Yes, my lady, I suppose so.' "'You are sure he was going to stay at the castle to-night?' "'Oh, yes, my lady. I helped the girl to get his room ready before I came away.' The wind, boisterous everywhere, was even shriller and more pitiless in the neighbourhood of that bleak hill-top upon which the castle inn reared its rickety walls. The cruel blasts raved wildly around that frail erection. They disported themselves with the shattered pigeon-house, the broken weathercock, the loose tiles and unshapely chimneys. They rattled at the window-panes and whistled in the crevices. They mocked the feeble building from foundation to roof and battered and banged and tormented it in their fierce gambols, until it trembled and rocked with the force of their rough play. Mr. Luke Marks had not troubled himself to secure the door of his dwelling-house before sitting down to booze with the man who held provisional possession of his goods and chattels. The landlord of the castle inn was a lazy, sensual brute, who had no thought higher than a selfish concern for his own enjoyments, and a virulent hatred for anybody who stood in the way of his gratification. Phoebe pushed open the door with her hand, and went into the house, followed by my lady. The gas was flaring in the bar, and smoking the low, plastered ceiling. The door of the bar-parlour was half open, and Lady Audley heard the brutal laughter of Mr. Marks as she crossed the threshold of the inn. "'I'll tell him you're here, my lady,' whispered Phoebe to her late mistress. "'I know he'll be tipsy. You—you won't be offended, my lady, if he should say anything rude. You know it wasn't my wish that you should come.' "'Yes, yes,' answered Lady Audley, impatiently. "'I know that. What should I care for his rudeness? Let him say what he likes.' Phoebe Marks pushed open the parlour door, leaving my lady in the bar close behind her. Luke sat with his clumsy legs stretched out upon the hearth. He held a glass of gin and water in one hand and the poker in the other. He had just thrust the poker into a heap of black coals, and was scattering them to make a blaze, when his wife appeared upon the threshold of the room. He snatched the poker from between the bars, and made a half-drunken, half-threatening motion with it as he saw her. "'So you've condescended to come home at last, ma'am,' he said. "'I thought you was never coming home no more.' He spoke in a thick and drunken voice, and was by no means too intelligible. He was steeped to the very lips in alcohol. His eyes were dim and watery, his hands were unsteady, his voice was choked and muffled with drink. A brute, even when most sober—a brute, even on his best behavior—he was ten times more brutal in his drunkenness, when the few restraints which held his ignorant, every-day brutality in check, were flung aside in the indolent recklessness of intoxication. "'I—I've been longer than I intended to be, Luke,' Phoebe answered in her most conciliatory manner. "'But I've seen my lady, and she's been very kind, and—and she'll settle this business for us.' "'She's been very kind, has she?' muttered Mr. Marks, with a drunken laugh. "'Thank her for nothing. I know the valley of her kindness. She'd be uncommon kind, I say, if she weren't obliged to be it.'" The man in possession, who had fallen into a maudlin and semi-unconscious state of intoxication upon about a third of the liquor that Mr. Marks had consumed, only stared in feeble wonderment at his host and hostess. He sat near the table— Indeed, he had hooked himself on to it with his elbows, as a safeguard against sliding under it, and he was making imbecile attempts to light his pipe at the flame of a guttering tallow-candle near him. "'My lady has promised to settle the business for us, Luke,' Phoebe repeated, without noticing Luke's remarks. She knew her husband's dog in nature well enough by this time, to know that it was worse than useless to try to stop him from doing or saying anything which his own stubborn will led him to do or say. "'My lady will settle it,' she said. "'And she's come down here to see about it to-night,' she added. The poker dropped from the landlord's hand, and fell clattering among the cinders on the hearth. "'My Lady Audley, come here to-night,' he said. "'Yes, Luke.' My Lady appeared upon the threshold of the door as Phoebe spoke. "'Yes, Luke Marks,' she said. "'I have come to pay this man, and to send him about his business.' Lady Audley said these words in a strange, semi-mechanical manner— very much as if she had learned the sentence by rote, and were repeating it without knowing what she said. Mr. Marks gave a discontented growl, and set his empty glass down upon the table with an impatient gesture. "'You might have given the money to Phoebe,' he said, "'as well as have brought it yourself. We don't want no fine ladies up here, prying and poking their precious noses into everythink.' "'Luke, Luke!' remonstrated Phoebe, "'when my lady has been so kind!' "'Oh, damn her kindness!' cried Mr. Marks. "'It ain't her kindness we want, gal. It's her money. She won't get no snivelling gratitude from me. Whatever she does for us, she does because she is obliged. And if she wasn't obliged, she wouldn't do it.' Heaven knows how much more Luke Marks might have said, had not my lady turned upon him suddenly and awed him into silence by the unearthly glitter of her beauty. Her hair had been blown away from her face— and being of a light feathery quality, had spread itself into a tangled mass that surrounded her forehead like a yellow flame. There was another flame in her eyes, a greenish light, such as might flash from the changing-hued orbs of an angry mermaid. "'Stop!' she cried. "'I didn't come up here in the dead of night to listen to your insolence. How much is this debt?' Nine pound. Lady Audley produced her purse, a toy of ivory, silver, and turquoise— She took from it a note and four sovereigns. She laid these upon the table. "'Let that man give me a receipt for the money,' she said, "'before I go.'" It was some time before the man could be roused into sufficient consciousness for the performance of this simple duty, and it was only by dipping a pen into the ink and pushing it between his clumsy fingers that he was at last made to comprehend that his autograph was wanted at the bottom of the receipt which had been made out by Phoebe Marks. Lady Audley took the document as soon as the ink was dry, and turned to leave the parlour phoebe followed her you mustn't go home alone my lady she said you'll let me go with you yes yes you shall go home with me the two women were standing near the door of the inn as my lady said this phoebe stared wonderingly at her patroness she had expected that lady audley would be in a hurry to return home after settling this business which she had capriciously taken upon herself but it was not so my lady stood leaning against the inn door and staring into vacancy And again Mrs. Marks began to fear that trouble had driven her late mistress mad. A little Dutch clock in the bar struck two, while Lady Audley lingered in this irresolute, absent manner. She started at the sound and began to tremble violently. "'I think I am going to faint, Phoebe,' she said. "'Where can I get some cold water?' "'The pump is in the wash-house, my lady. I'll run and get you a glass of cold water.' "'No, no, no,' cried my lady, clutching Phoebe's arm as she was about to run away upon this errand. I'll get it myself. I must dip my head in a basin of water if I want to save myself from fainting. In which room does Mr. Audley sleep?' There was something so irrelevant in this question that Phoebe Mark stared aghast at her mistress before she answered it. "'It was number 3 that I got ready, my lady, the front room—the room next to ours,' she replied, after that pause of astonishment. "'Give me a candle,' said my lady. "'I'll go into your room, and get some water for my head.' "'Stay where you are, and see that that brute of a husband of yours does not follow me.' She snatched the candle which Phoebe had lighted from the girl's hand, and ran up the rickety, winding staircase which led to the narrow corridor upon the upper floor. Five bedrooms opened out of this low-ceilinged, close-smelling corridor. The number of these rooms were indicated by squat black figures painted upon the panels of the doors. Lady Audley had driven up to Mount Stanning to inspect the house when she bought the business for her servant's bridegroom— and she knew her way about the dilapidated old place. She knew where to find Phoebe's bedroom, but she stopped before the door of that other chamber which had been prepared for Mr. Robert Audley. She stopped and looked at the number on the door. The key was in the lock, and her hand dropped upon it as if unconsciously. But presently she suddenly began to tremble again, as she had trembled a few minutes before, at the striking of the clock. She stood for a few moments trembling thus, with her hand still upon the key. Then a horrible expression came over her face— and she turned the key in the lock. She turned it twice, double-locking the door. There was no sound from within. The occupant of the chamber made no sign of having heard that ominous creaking of the rusty key in the rusty lock. Lady Audley hurried into the next room. She set the candle on the dressing-table, flung off her bonnet, and slung it loosely across her arm. Then she went to the washstand and filled the basin with water. She plunged her golden hair into this water, and then stood for a few moments in the centre of the room looking about her— with a white, earnest face, and an eager gaze that seemed to take in every object in the poorly furnished chamber. Phoebe's bedroom was certainly very shabbily furnished. She had been compelled to select all the most decent things for those best bedrooms which were set apart for any chance traveller who might stop for a night's lodging at the castle inn. But Phoebe Marks had done her best to atone for the lack of substantial furniture in her apartment by a superabundance of drapery. Crisp curtains of cheap chintz hung from the tent bedstead, Festooned drapery of the same material shrouded the narrow window, shutting out the light of day, and affording a pleasant harbor for tribes of flies and predatory bands of spiders. Even the looking glass, a miserably cheap construction which distorted every face whose owner had the hardihood to look into it, stood upon a draperied altar of starched muslin and pink glazed calico, and was adorned with frills of lace and knitted work. My lady smiled as she looked at the festoons and furbelows which met her eyes upon every side. She had reason, perhaps, to smile, remembering the costly elegance of her own apartments, but there was something in that sardonic smile that seemed to have a deeper meaning than any natural contempt for Phoebe's attempts at decoration. She went to the dressing-table, and smoothed her wet hair before the looking-glass, and then put on her bonnet. She was obliged to place the flaming tallow-candle very close to the lace furbelows about the glass, so close that the starched muslin seemed to draw the flame toward it by some power of attraction in its fragile tissue. Phoebe waited anxiously by the inn door for my lady's coming. She watched the minute-hand of the little Dutch clock, wondering at the slowness of its progress. It was only ten minutes past two when Lady Audley came downstairs, with her bonnet on and her hair still wet, but without the candle. Phoebe was immediately anxious about this missing candle. "'The light, my lady,' she said, "'you have left it upstairs.' "'The wind blew it out as I was leaving your room,' Lady Audley answered, quietly. I left it there. In my room, my lady? Yes. And it was quite out? Yes, I tell you. Why do you worry me about your candle? It is past two o'clock. Come. She took the girl's arm and half led, half dragged her from the house. The convulsive pressure of her slight hand held her firmly as an iron vice could have held her. The fierce march wind banged to the door of the house, and left the two women standing outside it. The long black road lay bleak and desolate before them, dimly visible between straight lines of leafless hedges. A walk of three miles' length upon a lonely country road, between the hours of two and four on a cold winter's morning, is scarcely a pleasant task for a delicate woman, a woman whose inclinations lean toward ease and luxury. But my lady hurried along the hard, dry highway, dragging her companion with her as if she had been impelled by some horrible, demonic force which knew no abatement. With the black night above them— with the fierce wind howling around them, sweeping across a broad expanse of hidden country, blowing as if it had arisen simultaneously from every point of the compass, and making those wanderers the focus of its ferocity. The two women walked through the darkness down the hill upon which Mount Stanning stood, along a mile and a half of flat road, and then up another hill, on the western side of which Audley Court lay in that sheltered valley, which seemed to shut in the old house from all the clamor and hubbub of the everyday world. My lady stopped upon the summit of this hill to draw breath and to clasp her hands upon her heart, in the vain hope that she might still its cruel beating. They were now within three-quarters of a mile of the court, and they had been walking for nearly an hour since they left the castle inn. Lady Audley stopped to rest, with her face still turned toward the place of her destination. Phoebe Marks, stopping also, and very glad of a moment's pause in that hurried journey, looked back into the far darkness beneath which lay that dreary shelter that had given her so much uneasiness— And as she did so, she uttered a shrill cry of horror, and clutched wildly at her companion's cloak. The night sky was no longer all dark. The thick blackness was broken by one patch of lurid light. "'My lady! My lady!' cried Phoebe, pointing to this lurid patch. "'Do you see?' "'Yes, child, I see,' answered Lady Audley, trying to shake the clinging hands from her garments. "'What's the matter?' "'It's a fire! A fire, my lady!' "'Yes, I'm afraid it is a fire—at Brentwood, most likely. Let me go, Phoebe. It's nothing to us.' "'Yes, yes, my lady. It's nearer than Brentwood—much nearer. It's at Mount Stanning.' Lady Audley did not answer. She was trembling again, with the cold perhaps, for the wind had torn her heavy cloak from her shoulders, and had left her slender figure exposed to the blast. "'It's at Mount Stanning, my lady,' cried Phoebe Marks. "'It's the castle that's on fire. I know it is! I know it is!' I thought of fire to-night, and I was fidgety and uneasy, for I knew this would happen some day. I wouldn't mind if it was only the wretched place. But there'll be life lost! There'll be life lost!' sobbed the girl distractedly. "'There's Luke, too tipsy to help himself, unless others help him. There's Mr. Audley, asleep!' Phoebe Mark stopped suddenly at the mention of Robert's name, and fell upon her knees, clasping her uplifted hands, and appealing wildly to Lady Audley. "'Oh, my God!' she cried. "'Say it's not true, my lady! Say it's not true! It's too horrible! It's too horrible! It's too horrible! What's too horrible? The thought that's in my mind! The terrible thought that's in my mind! "'What do you mean, girl?' cried my lady fiercely. "'Oh, God, forgive me if I'm wrong!' the kneeling woman gasped in detached sentences. "'And God grant I may be! Why did you go up to the castle, my lady?' Why were you so set on going against all I could say? You who were so bitter against Mr. Audley and against Luke, and who knew that they were both under that roof! Oh, tell me that I do you a cruel wrong, my lady! Tell me so, tell me! For as there is a heaven above me, I think that you went to that place to-night on purpose to set fire to it. Tell me that I'm wrong, my lady! Tell me that I'm doing you a wicked wrong!' "'I will tell you nothing, except that you are a madwoman,' answered Lady Audley, in a cold, hard voice. "'Get up!' "'Fool, idiot, coward! "'Is your husband such a precious bargain "'that you should be grovelling there "'lamenting and groaning for him? "'What is Robert Audley to you "'that you behave like a maniac "'because you think he is in danger? "'How do you know the fire is at Mount Stanning? "'You see a red patch in the sky, "'and you cry out directly "'that your own paltry hovel is in flames, "'as if there were no place in the world "'that could be burnt except that? "'The fire may be at Brentwood, "'or further away, at Romford, or still further away, on the eastern side of London, perhaps. Get up, mad woman, and go back and look after your goods and chattels, and your husband and your lodger. Get up and go. I don't want you." "'Oh, my lady! My lady, forgive me!' sobbed Phoebe. "'There's nothing you can say to me that's hard enough for having done you such a wrong, even my thoughts. I don't mind your cruel words. I don't mind anything if I'm wrong.' "'Go back and see for yourself.' answered Lady Audley sternly. "'I tell you again, I don't want you.' She walked away in the darkness, leaving Phoebe Marks still kneeling upon the hard road, where she had cast herself in that agony of supplication. Sir Michael's wife walked toward the house in which her husband slept, with the red blaze lighting up the skies behind her, and with nothing but the blackness of the night before. End of chapter 32